So again, we've been studying through Paul's letter to the Galatians here on uh, Sunday mornings, and we've been taking it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's something that we like to do here at Whitefields because we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. This is His Word to us, and we want to get the whole message, and we want to get it in context. So we've been studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and here at the end of Galatians chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we come to a place where Paul uses three powerful and very descriptive metaphors to describe what the gospel is. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Here are those three metaphors. He said he uses the metaphor of being adopted as sons. Next, he uses another metaphor. He says you have been clothed with Christ. And thirdly, he uses the metaphor in saying you will come of age. Okay, so adopted as sons, clothed with Christ, and then coming of age. And as we look at these metaphors, what we see is the full scope of the gospel. The gospel is that in Christ, God not only sets us free from our old life, that we lived apart from him, but he gives us a new life in him. So first we are adopted as sons, then we are clothed with Christ, and then we come of age. So let's begin by looking at this first metaphor. Adopted as sons. Let me paint a picture for you. Let me give you some historical background to help you understand where this is coming from, to help you grasp what all's being said here. Paul's writing to the Galatians. These were people who lived in the Roman Empire uh, roughly 2,000 years ago. Now at that time in the Roman Empire, infant mortality rates were through the roof, really. They were very high. There's an estimate that about 40% of children in this day in the Roman Empire did not make it to their fifth birthday. Oftentimes, parents wouldn't even bother naming their children uh, until the child was a, a week old because so many children didn't even survive that first week. And of those who did survive, many of the children who were born into poor families, they were often discarded. They would be abandoned, they'd be put in the trash heap, they'd be left in the streets to fend for themselves and, uh, and eventually die. And so guess what that led to? Well, what happened was that, uh, there, well, one thing that happened was that there would be these gangs of orphans who would kind of roam the streets, discarded children. And uh, if you've ever seen Oliver Twist, you, you get the ideas. These gangs of homeless children roaming the streets, they're fending for themselves and doing whatever they need to do to survive. And another thing that happened, which hard to say which one was worse, they're both terrible, but another thing that would happen is that people with bad intentions would take these children and exploit them. They were uh, abandoned, they were vulnerable, and they would be exploited. People would round them up and kind of do whatever they wanted to them. You can imagine, uh, we're talking about prostitution, slavery, horrific abuses, things like that. And you know what's terrible is that this kind of thing actually still happens in many places around the world. When we lived in Europe for all those years, you know, we would go to Romania a lot. And, uh, and in Romania, you see these street children everywhere. And it's the same story with them. You see discarded children living on the street and they end up being victimized. They end up being abused and exploited. So this kind of thing still happens around the world, even to this day. But it was very common in the Roman Empire at that time. And in that culture, uh, children were not highly regarded at all. 
They really had no rights and they weren't valued the way that we value children in our culture. They were more or less viewed as a nuisance. That's why if there were any, you know, a child was disabled, well then they would immediately be discarded by their parents, even at a young age. And so that's interesting though when you consider that when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, what does he do? He changes the way that people view children. And Jesus, you remember, he gets swarmed by all these little kids, right? And there come his disciples and they're telling him, get out of here, kids, you know, shoo. And we don't know what kind of kids these were. Maybe they were kids who had parents. Maybe they were street kids swarming Jesus. We don't know. But his disciples didn't thought, you know, Jesus is an important guy. He doesn't have time for runny-nosed little kids. The great master doesn't have time for little children. He's an important, important man. But then Jesus steps up and says, no. No, 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 no. I love kids. Let the little children come to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then, you know, you ever think about what that means? You know what Jesus meant by that? Jesus wasn't just trying to change the way that people thought about children. He was doing that, but he was doing more than that. He was also trying to change the way that people thought about God. See, Jesus was trying to show people that God is a father. He was trying to introduce people to the father heart of God. That's why he teaches his disciples to pray and he teaches them to pray like this. He says, our father. That was a revolutionary idea. It's something that we often take for granted. Jesus told the people, he said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not receive it. Now what is Jesus saying? What what he's trying to teach them is that God is a father. He's trying to show them the father heart of God. And he's also revealing to them a great truth. That they could be adopted into the family of God. See, another thing that would happen in that day is that if there was a man who, for whatever reason, didn't have a son to be an heir of his property or of his namesake, and he was facing the situation of dying without an heir, and, you know, his family name would come to an end. His, no one would be there to inherit his property. In that case, it was common practice for a man in that situation to adopt an orphan and make him his heir. And in most cases, they would do this with slaves, right? So if you were a wealthier person, then you would choose one of your own slaves. If you had slaves, and you'd say, all right, you, you're going to be my heir, and I'm going to adopt you. And then at that point when that person adopted that slave, they ceased to be a slave and they became a son. Their legal status changed. The way that the man treated them would change. For the lower classes, oftentimes they would go and purchase a slave in order to have an heir. But of course, not everybody can afford a slave. And so you end up also with another thing that happened is that people would go and they would take these street children These children who obviously they didn't have to pay for. And they would adopt one of these children off the street so they would have an heir. And when they did that, they would bring this boy or this young man into their house. And he would be a full-fledged son. With all the rights of a son, he would treat him as a son. He'd give him a new name. He'd give him a new legal status. He would no no longer be considered uh, a slave or a servant or a street child. Now he would be considered a son. And he would be no different than a naturally born son. So he would be brought in and the father would care for him. The father would clothe him. The father would seat him at his table. Not as a servant who would wait upon the father, but as a son who dines with the father. And he would be the heir of everything that the father had. 
And I want you to get that picture in your mind and then realize that this is the image that Paul is tapping into when he says that this is the gospel. The gospel is you have been adopted by God. This is the picture. This is what's being talked about when it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. This is the kind of love that we're talking about here. The gospel is that in Christ you have been adopted. Some of you were slaves living in bondage to something. Some of you were like servants. You, you were working for God. You had this concept that God's the boss, but your relationship with him was distant. It was like the relationship between a boss and an employee, not like the relationship between a father and a son. Some of you were like street kids living in the gutter, living in the trash heaps, spending your days sifting through garbage in life with no hope and no future. But here's the gospel that God went out and found you. He went out and sought you out and he rescued you from the garbage pile. He rescued you from the gutter. He gave you a new name. He saved you from a life of slavery and bondage. Gave you a new name, a new identity, a new future. Because now you are an heir of all of his riches and he no longer treats you as a slave as an employee but he treats you as a beloved son that's the gospel that's what it means to be a child of God it means that God has adopted you and made you his child he has adopted you brought you into his family and as an adopted son you receive an inheritance now maybe you notice that I keep using the word son instead of child well maybe you say you know why don't you say sons and daughters why don't you say children that would be a little bit more you know egalitarian it'd be better right well well the reason is because the bible specifically uses the the word sons and there's an important reason why this metaphor is gender specific so before you get hung up on, on this and think that, you know, jump to any conclusions that the Bible's misogynistic or whatever, take a second to consider this metaphor and why it is gender specific. Because here's the reason. What the, what the Bible's saying when you realize what's actually being said here through the, through the use of the word sons rather than children or, or sons and daughters, it's actually very revolutionary as regards the value of women and the status of women in that culture and in the Christian uh, in the Christian person's mind. So why adopted sons and why not adopted children or even sons and daughters? Well, here's why. Uh, in, that, in ancient cultures, in most ancient cultures, including this one, daughters were not eligible to inherit things, right? They could not be heirs of an estate, of wealth, uh, of property, and so what's being said here is actually, uh, is actually quite revolutionary as, as regards the value and the status of women. And here's what I would say to you is that the gospel elevates women to a place of equality with men before God. And that's very important. And I think that's something which we would all, you know, kind of take for granted. We have to realize and remember that it has not always been that way in every culture and at every time. Uh, that's pretty much what's being said here. In verse 28, we read that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you're all one in Christ. The point of using a gender-specific metaphor, adopted sons, is that it's saying that both men 
and women have equal value, equal status before God in Christ. And that's important for us to see. Because this was unheard of at that time. This would have been unprecedented. To think that women would have the same status before God as men, as heirs of the promise in the same way. Equally loved and equally cherished children of God. Because in that society, we have to admit that women were not at all equal to men. Even a woman's, a woman's word was not accepted as legal testimony in court. They, they considered women to be second-class citizens, less than men. But here comes the gospel, and the gospel elevates the place of women in society, and especially, you know, beginning in the church, in this countercultural society that we call the church. If you look at a map, one thing you'll notice is that where Christianity has spread, the status of women has improved. It's been elevated. And there's a very basic theological reason for that. Because the Bible teaches us that men and women are equal before God, right? And then it teaches us that women are to be cherished. See, as Christians, we do not believe that men should treat women the same way they treat other men. We believe that men should treat women better than they treat men. Ladies, you don't want us to treat you the way we treat each other. We treat each other horribly, right? So we, we want to treat you better than we treat men. That, that is the Christian gender ethic, okay? The Bible teaches men to respect women. It teaches them to view older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. Think about how you treat your mom and your sisters. Do you, uh, you objectify them? No, no, that would be kind of weird, right? Uh, well, you don't try to take advantage of them every chance you get. No, of course not. You treat them with loving kindness, right? And you treat them with respect and you demand respect for them from other people. That is the Christian gender ethic. That is the Christian man's ethic towards women. Don't treat them the same way you treat other men. Treat them better. Cherish them. Respect them. And the other thing to keep in mind as, as regards this gender-specific metaphor, adopted sons, is that, that God's, he's, a, uh, he's an equal opportunity God when it comes to awkward gender-specific metaphors because he also describes all Christians together as the bride of Christ, right? So next time you get hung up on, you know, adopted sons, just consider, you know, your husband or your, you know, male friends and wearing wedding dresses because that's what we're talking about. Bride of Christ, ladies, you're adopted sons. Men, you're the bride of Christ. Deal with it. God's an equal opportunity, uh, God, when it comes to awkward gender-specific metaphors. So getting back to adoption, what we see in the Bible is that, that God not only has a father's heart, but he has an adoptive heart. And the point of the metaphor is this, that God wants you to see salvation as adoption. He wants you to see salvation in terms of an adoption, Okay. Did you know this? You ever consider this? That Jesus was adopted? You ever think about that? Jesus was adopted. God comes into this world. He becomes a man and he does not have an earthly father. So he's adopted by an earthly father, a man named Joseph, who cared for him and raised him as his own, in his own home as his own son. So if God comes into this world and is adopted and then told us that salvation that he brings is like an adoption, then that means that adoption is a good thing and a glorious thing. It's something that's very near and dear to the heart of God. 
And the early Christians got this. This is something they understood. They understood that since God is a father and through Jesus we've been adopted into his family, then we should also be adopting children into our families. And so what's interesting is that when Christianity started to spread in the Roman Empire, the Christians started going out and adopting these abandoned children that I referred to just a minute ago. They started adopting these street kids, you know, these babies who had been discarded and left for dead, the, the children with disabilities. The Christians would go out and they would take them in and they would adopt them and they would raise them and care for them, give them their name, make them their children. Why? Well, it was a different reason than why they, the Romans had done it. The Romans had, had done it because they needed an heir, because they needed something. When the Christians did it, they did it for a different reason. They did it because God had adopted them. You see, here's the thing. Your theology informs your activity. Why is theology important? Why is it important that we study the word? Why is it important that we get to know the gospel so intimately? Here's why. Because theology informs activity. And throughout the centuries, this is one place where Christians have, have gotten it. They've always loved adoption. And if you look through history, you see Christians taking care of orphans and adopting them. Why? Because God adopted us. And why did he adopt you? Because you were the best looking street kid on the trash pile? No, was it because you were the hardest working slave in the slave market? No. It's because he's a good God. He's a compassionate God who wanted to show you love by pouring out upon you grace and adopting you into his family, making you a son and an heir. And so the Bible says in Ephesians 5 verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So the foundation for being an imitator of God is what? Is being a beloved child. Is being a child who's been adopted into this family. Have you ever noticed that little boys who have good dads, who love them, who are there for them, who absolutely adore them, those little boys want to grow up and be like their dad. And guess what? The little girls who have a dad who loves them and adores them, they grow up and they want to marry somebody who's like their dad, right? When kids have a good dad who loves them, they want to be like their dad. They want to imitate him. And that is important when we talk about the gospel. And here's why. Because in Christianity, when we talk about change in action, change in behavior, change in lifestyle, it begins with a change in identity, so many times we get that backwards. So many times we try to say, do this, don't do that. We've been talking about that throughout Galatians. Do this, don't do that. But see, all you're doing is changing behavior. You're suppressing behavior. But it, real behavior change, real lasting change begins with a change of the heart. It begins with a change of identity. When we realize that God is a true father who loves us, who chose us, who came after us and adopted us and brought us into his home, into his family, gave us a name and an inheritance, seated us at his table. When we see that great love that God's shown us, when we see that grace that God's poured out upon us, what does it move us to do? What does it motivate us to do? How does it motivate us to live? It motivates us, it moves us to imitate him it changes our heart towards him 
When we see God, we, we see him as a loving father. And if he says something to us, well, then surely he says it because he loves us, right? He, we see that if we get to know him as an adoptive father. As we get to know the gospel, we see that when he tells us to do stuff, it's not because he's an overlord, but it's because he's a loving father. So I say, I want to be like that. I want to be like my dad. You see, in Christianity, the gospel is, is not a message about what you need to do for God. It is the good news of what has been done for you by God. And here's what God has done for you. He has adopted you. And when you see that, when you get it, when you let it sink in, when you understand it, that you have a heavenly father who absolutely loves and adores you, who cares for you and blesses you, it makes you want to imitate him. See, true and lasting change of behavior isn't contrived, it isn't forced, it isn't manufactured, but it's real and it's authentic and it is the natural byproduct of a heart that has been changed. Change of behavior begins with change of identity and here is your identity in Christ. You are adopted and brought in and loved and you have an inheritance. The next metaphor that Paul uses, first he says we've been adopted as sons. Next he says that we've been clothed with Christ. In verse 27 we read, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul says that through faith, right, in the, the outer symbol, sign of faith is being baptized into Christ. He says those, you who be, have believed and expressed faith in Christ, you have put on Christ. Another translation, it says, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. So what we're talking about here is a comparison, comparing Jesus to a garment that you put on, right? clothing that you put on this is one of you know along with the one of adoption it's one that we see throughout the bible we see this one also throughout the new testament paul talks about putting on the lord jesus being clothed with christ like a garment and there are four things that that i want to bring out of this metaphor which give us insight into the gospel so four things that this metaphor speaks to regarding the gospel number one clothing speaks of identity clothing speaks of identity so when I was growing up, one of my favorite movies uh, was this indie film about these punk rockers who lived in Salt Lake City. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because uh, I don't recommend that any of you watch it. Any, anybody know the movie I'm talking about? All right, so some of you guys know this, right? All right, so uh, it's this movie about these uh, punk rockers who lived in Salt Lake City. Now, I love punk rock growing up. I still have a, a little bit of a palette for punk rock music, uh, although it's toned down a little bit. But uh, I was very drawn to this movie for that reason. And the, the whole thing about this movie is that it's set in Salt Lake City, right? Which, uh, you know, if you're a punk rocker, I guess kind of the point is that you want to stand out from the crowd. And there's nowhere else in the world that you stand out from the crowd more as a punk rocker than Salt Lake City, Utah, right? Where everybody's straight-laced and Mormon and, and ultra-conservative. So this movie was about how um, the punk rock lifestyle is all about nonconformity. It's all about, or at least it's supposed to be about these things. It's supposed to be about nonconformity and individuality and autonomy and being your own person and refusing to be pressed into the mold that society has tried to force upon you, the box that tells you how you should look and how you should dress. But 
what happens in this film is that the main character, he comes to the realization that, that while he thought that he was rebelling and being a nonconformist by listening to this music and, and partying like crazy and looking the way he did, uh, he thought that he was exercising his individuality and independence and his refusal to conform. But he comes to this realization at the end of the movie that all along this whole punk rock thing is, is just a different kind of conformity. But in the end, he's not being an individual at all. He's just conforming in a different way to a different group. Because that hair that he had, the music, the clothes, they're nothing more than a uniform. He's putting on a uniform and then saying that he's an individual. And he realizes that he isn't actually being unique. He's not actually being a nonconformist. In fact, all he's doing is conforming to what other people say that he should do. And the point he makes at the end is really basically this. All clothing is really nothing less than a uniform that you wear that identifies you with a certain group of people. And, and we don't think about it that way, but think about it. The clothes I'm wearing right now, it's somewhat of a uniform. It's a uniform that identifies me with people of the same gender, people of the same social class, people of the same nationality, right? So what does it mean to put on Christ? What does it mean to clothe yourself with Christ? It means that you are putting on a uniform. It means that you are making that your primary identity in him. It means that first and foremost, your identity is not that you are an American or that you are a parent or that you are a photographer or an athlete or whatever. Your primary identity, when you have put on Christ, when you have put your faith in the gospel, is Christian. That is who you are, a follower of Jesus. That is your primary identity. That's what it means to put on Christ. It, because all clothing is all about identity. To put on Christ means to find your primary identity in him. So Paul says in verse 28, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. It means this, the barriers that separate people in this world into factions that war against each other, that fight amongst each other, those walls come down in Christ and we get a new identity, a new unifying identity. We're adopted children who have the same father and what that means is that we are family, right? So when I, when I lived in Hungary, I lived in Hungary for uh, just over 10 years. When I moved there, it was um, January 2002. And uh, we worked with this Bible college that uh, opened that year, 2002, in Hungary. And uh, they didn't just have Hungarian students, but they had students from, from the U.S., but they also had a lot of students from a lot of surrounding countries in Eastern Europe. And the first year they opened the Bible college, there were students who had come from former Yugoslavia, right? Uh, and the interesting thing was that we're talking about people who fought on opposite sides of a war, okay? So uh, in 1998, 1999, for those of you who remember, there was a war in Kosovo. The, the Serbian army attacked Kosovo. And uh, Kosovo didn't really have an army. They had this thing that was called the KLA, which was the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was really kind of like a militia. I mean, it's like teenage kids and like men who had no training, but they just gave them all these guns and said, okay, go fight against the Serbs. Well, well the first year that the Bible college was open there in Hungary, there, was, there were students from Kosovo, and there's this one particular student from Kosovo who had been 
in the Kosovo Liberation Army. He had carried a gun and fought against the Serbs. And there were also students from Serbia who had served in the Serbian army. Okay, you get this. These are people who three years before this had been in an actual war with each other, right? On opposite sides with weapons pointed at each other in a war. And the amazing thing was that these guys who had been in this conflict, they were actually friends. And not only friends, but they were, they were brothers. Because they understood that to put on Christ as their primary identity, you know, it, it means that they were Christians before they were Kosovars, before they were Serbs, before they were anything else. Everything else took a back seat. National identity, ethnicity, political views, it all took a back seat to who they were in Christ. And the amazing thing was that, you know, we worked in this town and we, we worked in a refugee camp a lot. And we would have these, we had this team from the Bible college come out one time. And on this team, you know, here's this guy from Kosovo and this other guy from Serbia. And what do they do? They lay aside their differences to come into a refugee camp where we had people from Yugoslavia and minister to those people and share Jesus with them. How amazing of a testimony of Jesus Christ is that? They come, they lay aside everything, they become brothers in Christ, and then they join together to share Jesus with people. What an amazing testimony to the power of the gospel. The gospel breaks down barriers that divide people and set them against each other. It makes us family, and it makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me tell you something that just comes to my mind is that if these guys who had been in an actual war against each other, right, if they were able to set aside their differences and live as brothers in Christ, how much more should you and I be able to do that, right? How much more should you and I be able to set aside differences and animosities and live together as family and love each other as family? We've been adopted into God's family. That's our primary identity. And you know, the, the thing about family is that family presses on through hard times. Family work together, right? You, of course you got a crazy uncle, right? Everybody's got a crazy uncle, and what are you going to do with him? He, he's your family. There's nothing you can do with him. You just bear with him, right? And as a result, you grow, and hopefully he grows. You know, there, there are some people who never get to experience what it means to be part of the family of God because every time there's a little conflict or something they don't like, they bail. But in a family, sometimes you drive each other nuts. Sometimes that's people's primary gifting, actually. That's the spiritual gifting is just driving people nuts. Um, some people are really good at it, you know. And uh, as you endure as a family, you grow in love. And you grow as a person. So being clothed with Christ, it speaks of identity. I'm going to go faster with these other points. But here, being clothed with Christ, it also speaks of, next, it speaks of relationship. There's nothing closer to you than your clothing, right? And it goes with you everywhere you go, all the time. So to be clothed with Christ speaks of this kind of relationship. Close to you, all the time, with you wherever you go. Number three, being clothed with Christ speaks of um, imitation of Christ, right? It speaks of being clothed with him means putting on his virtues. In other words, dressing up like him and acting like him. And number four, being clothed with Christ speaks of acceptability before God. One of the things that clothing does is that it covers up. 
you know, when we studied Genesis, you know, an interesting thing was that we talked about Adam and Eve, and they sinned, and they, they realized after they had sinned, they realized that they were naked. They had been naked the whole time, but suddenly they felt a sense of shame. And they tried to cover themselves up and cover up their shame by making clothes out of fig leaves. I don't know if you've ever seen a fig leaf, but that's like probably the worst leaf you could choose. It's itchy, and, uh, and you know, making clothes out of leaves, not a great tactic. The, see, fig leaves aren't comfortable. They're not good at covering you. So what happened there in Genesis, which I personally think is one of the most overlooked parts of that story of the fall into sin, is this. God comes after they've fallen into sin. They try to cover themselves, and then God shows up, and what does he do? He makes a sacrifice and creates clothing for them to cover their shame. Do you get it? This is the gospel. They sinned, they fell into sin, and they had a sense of shame. And then what? They tried to cover themselves, but their covering was completely insufficient. But along comes God. And at the price of a sacrifice, at the price of death, he covers them. He provides for them a covering. That is the gospel. That's what we're talking about. That God in his love and his mercy does the same thing with us. That we try to cover ourselves, cover up our sense of shame by doing all kinds of things. Trying to live a moral life, trying to be a good person, you know, recycling, giving to charity, that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but of course, it's completely insufficient to cover up our shame from sin. So what does God do? He comes along and at the price of a sacrifice, he creates a covering for us that is sufficient. And he says, put on my covering. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clothed in him so that when he looks at us, he no longer sees the sin and the shame. All he sees is Christ because we are clothed with him and covered by him. That's the gospel. Amazing? Amen. So the final metaphor that Paul uses to describe the full scope of the gospel is coming of age. First we are adopted as sons, then we're clothed with Christ, and then we come of age. And this idea of coming of age, it's the point when an individual goes from being a child to being an adult. It's, it's actually a major theme in almost every culture. And in some cultures, like the Roman culture, uh, the way it worked is that you would be considered an adult at age 14, more like a young man, but you would not have total freedom until you were 25, okay? And, the, you know, so it's very clear cut. These are the ages that you need to meet, and then you're an adult. In Jewish society, of course, you know about bar mitzvah and, and becoming a man. It's very detailed and outlined. But I think in our culture, this idea of coming of age is a lot uh, more fluid. It's a lot less defined. I've talked before, you know, in our culture that we, you know, we created this idea of adolescence, which can, you know, stretch from 12 until like 55, you know, where you, you live in your mom's basement and you play video games for six hours a day. And, you know, you might be 45 years old, but you're still kind of an adolescent, right? You're a, a boy who can shave more or less, right? In our culture, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot less defined. And in general, no one's really sure when a boy stops being a boy and, and becomes a man or, or when a girl becomes a woman. Is it 18? Is it when you're legally an adult? Is it 21? Is it when you graduate from college, move out of the house, start your first job, get married when you have a kid? Nobody really knows. You know, it's kind of a mystery. 
So it seems that in America, coming of age is, is more related to going through an experience that causes you to grow up, is what we say, right? Stop acting like a child. That's why if you notice like John Hughes movies, you know, the coming of age movies are very popular in American, uh, you know, pop culture. Because why? In, in, these movies always tell a story about a person who through a course of events some stuff happens to them and they come to a realization. They grow up and that is what we're told is how someone becomes an adult. That's kind of the story of the movie I talked about earlier with the punk rockers. They came of age. And, and in the same way in this metaphor of adoption as sons the ultimate goal of our Heavenly Father is not that we would remain children but that we would grow up. But what does it mean to grow up as a Christian? What does Christian maturity look like? How does it happen? How do we get there? And the metaphor that Paul uses in chapter 4 is that of a young man coming of age. You know, the reason why my kids need strict boundaries and rules, the reason why we have more laws for minors than we do for adults in our country is because children have not yet learned how to discern things for themselves, right? And adults we we at least hope that they don't need as many rules and boundaries because we assume that they should have learned at some point to discern for themselves between right and good and and all these things now that's why we have newspapers and that's why they're entertaining because we read about people who although they are adults they are not very mature and they don't make good decisions or use good discernment and that's sad but Christian maturity is when you're able to rightly discern the will of God and you're not asking all the time, is this a sin? Am I allowed to do this? Can I do this? In other words, Christian maturity is when you're able to actually live out your faith without needing someone to hold your hand and tell you how to do it. And this is part of the gospel. Not only that we are adopted as sons, not only that we are clothed with Christ, but that as we are believers that we will come of age. That we will reach a level of spiritual maturity in which we are able to live out our faith and lead others. That is the goal. When you come of age as a Christian, you no longer need to live under the law. That's what Paul's saying there in the beginning of chapter 4. That doesn't mean that you can disobey God now. It doesn't mean that you will. In fact, just the opposite. A mature Christian doesn't, a mature Christian does keep the law, but they do it without even thinking about it. You ever notice that? Because their relationship with God no longer consists of the question, am I allowed to do this? Is this sin? But now you move on to other questions. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I see that you're my father. I see that you love me. I see that you have a mission that you're working out in this world. Lord, what do you want me to do? How do I walk with you through this situation? How do I please you in this situation? You know, figuring out between right and wrong is, is actually pretty easy. You know, that's not the difficult part. You know what's difficult is figuring out between good and good. Which one's the right thing to do? Which one is the thing that God wants you to do? That's what takes discernment, right? True maturity is walking with the Lord and being able to discern his will in situations. And for that, the law cannot help you. The law just tells you this is good, this is bad. But if you want to move beyond that into maturity, the law can't help you. What you need is the Holy Spirit. 
And that's what God is calling us to. That's what he wants for your life, for you to live the gospel life where, where you move beyond the law, beyond the questions of right and wrong. Is this sin? Is this okay? That's the shallow stuff. That's the splashing around in the kiddie pool. God's desire is that you as his child would come of age and mature beyond the law, beyond the point where you need to ask those basic questions to the point of maturity where you're walking in step with him in the spirit. That's, that's essentially what Ephesians 4 says. If you ever get the chance, check out the first half of Ephesians 4. It says that the end goal is that we would come of age and reach the stature of our big brother, Jesus Christ, the very image of perfection and intimate fellowship with God the Father. So I'll wrap it up with that. Here's the gospel as presented in three metaphors. We are adopted as sons. We're given an inheritance. We're clothed with Christ. And then we come of age as he trains you up into maturity to the point where you're able to actively live out your faith and be God's instrument to lead others in his way as well. May that be true of us today. Amen? Let's stand and pray. And today what we're going to do is take communion as we continue to worship and I encourage you to we've heard the gospel today I pray that you would uh, in this time respond to the gospel through worship through taking communion let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for good and glorious gospel Lord we thank you that you've adopted us as sons we thank you Lord that you've taken us from a life of slavery from a life on the streets Lord and you've brought us in to your home you've seated us at your table and you've given us a name and a future and a hope and an inheritance so we give you all the glory for that we praise your name greatly and we, we continue in a spirit of worship now as we remember what you've done for us by taking communion as we respond to you in worship amen